take your Bible tonight, please, and open to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And when you get to chapter 8, John chapter 8, I invite you to stand with me. We're going to read just a couple of verses here before we continue. John chapter 8, we'll begin at verse 43, and we'll finish at verse 46, 43 to 46. So those four verses. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 43. Let's begin, folks. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? Praise the Lord for this passage here. We're going to speak tonight on a subject, how we know that the Bible is perfect. And it's a very striking illustration here. But if you look once again in verse 46, the words of Jesus which of you convinceth me, now that's speaking of himself, the Lord Jesus, which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, that's his word, why do ye not believe me? That's Jesus. Now, over the the last few months, every month I've tried to bring a new message once a month uh, about our Bible to help strengthen our faith in the, the Bible God's given us. We've spoken of the inspiration of the Bible. We've spoken of the preservation of the Bible. Tonight we're going to be looking at the perfection uh, of the Bible and uh, how we can know that the Bible is perfect. So let's begin with prayer. Our Father, once again, we humble ourselves before you and we are just groping, Lord, it seems, in the darkness and yet there's a light shining and that light is your word. Help us to move toward it because the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. We hold in our hands a copy of your sacred word. Our Father, it's more than just a book. It's your word in print. It's your mind. It's your power. It's our Lord Jesus, the written word. Help us to really understand what it is we've got. Our dear Father, open the eyes of our understanding tonight to examine a a very striking principle that will help inspire and help strengthen our faith. And we'll give you the thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now I'd like you to look once again at verse 46. Open it up and look at 846. I want you to see that in chapter 8, verse 46, we have Jesus and we have his word. Now notice that again. Which of you convinceth me of sin? Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, those those religious leaders, and they were wicked in his day. And uh, he said to them, which of, which of you convinceth me? Which of you have, ha- have evidence and proof that I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner? Uh, do you have any kind of evidence? Do you have any kind of, of proof? Where are the witnesses? Where, where is the evidence that proves that I've committed sin, that I've broken God's laws, or that I've, I've done things I shouldn't have? Where is that evidence? Now, folks, there's evidence against you and me tonight. 
There's evidence that we are not perfect. There's evidence that we've gone astray. We think wrong thoughts. We say wrong things. We go places we shouldn't. Our hands reach out and do things that are not right. And then, of course, there's the other side of the coin, the, the good things that we don't do. And uh, did you know that lack of prayer is a sin? Did you know that lack of Bible reading and Bible study is actually a sin? Did you know that lack of doing the will of God is a sin? So you see, we're sinners by birth and by choice, and there's a plethora of, in, of evidence uh, against us. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus, there wasn't any evidence. He was as perfect, as perfect, as perfect, as perfect can possibly be. There was no human ever that was as perfect as our Lord Jesus. And you have in his words here a striking uh, comparison. He says, which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth. Now that's all that would come out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus doesn't go around telling lies. The devil goes around telling lies. Jesus doesn't tell lies. And so he says, if I, if I tell the truth, that's his word. Why do you not believe me? What Jesus is saying is that as perfect as he is, so is his word. That which comes out of the mouth of Jesus comes from the heart of Jesus, which is as pure as pure can be. As Jesus Christ is pure and sinless, so is his word as pure and sinless. Very interesting, isn't it? Now take, for example, uh, Martin Luther and his writings. Back there in the, um, around the 1500s or so, Martin Luther lived uh, in Germany. He was born in 1483, but he died in 1546. And many people believe that he was a key man in bringing about the Protestant Reformation. Understand what that is. The Protestant Reformation was a protest against the Roman Catholic Church. And a lot of people in there were protesting against all of the sins, all of the carnality, all of the oppression of the Catholic Church there in the 1400s and the 1500s. And Martin Luther was a, a Catholic monk who got saved. And as he was reading the scripture, and by the way, that's how he got saved, was by reading the scriptures. And so that's why we try and encourage people, read the Bible, read the Bible. And so Martin Luther read the Bible, and he got saved. And the more he read the Bible, the more he saw differences between what the Bible was saying and what his Catholic Pope was saying. And so it finally he could, he could hold it in no longer. And uh, there in uh, the town of Wurttemberg, he uh, went to a particular cathedral, and with a large paper with 95 different items on it, he nailed this thing to the, the door of the church. It was called his 95 Theses, in which he, he rebelled, he protested what was going on in the Catholic Church. And many people look upon him as the man who opened the door for the Protestant Reformation. Understand, Baptists are not Protestant because we've never been part of Rome. We've existed down through the last 2,000 years. We haven't always been called Baptist, but we've always been Bible believers. We've always been believers in the Lord Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life to heaven. We've always believed in a heaven above and a hell below, and that there's only one way, and that's Jesus Christ to get to heaven. We've always believed that this book is the book of God. We've always believed in prayer. We've always believed in trying to witness and soul winning and trying to get the Word of God around the world. We haven't always been called Baptists, but we've always been Bible believers, always. And we've existed for 2,000 years, and we've never been part of Rome. But there's been a lot of people come out of Rome, and these are the ones who form churches, 
Protestant churches. And so that, in a nutshell, is the difference. But if you go back to Martin Luther, you cannot separate Martin Luther from his writings. He wrote many books and pamphlets denouncing the Pope and several uh, Roman Catholic doctrines. They arrested him. They put him on trial. They said to him, Dr. Luther, are these your books? Are these your pamphlets? Is this your writing? He went over to the table and he looked at it all and he said, yes, those are my books and pamphlets. Those are my writings. They called upon him to recant. They called upon him now to deny what he had written. And uh, Martin Luther, he struggled and asked for a period of grace and time to reflect and to come back with an answer. They granted him, I believe it was a day. And so the following day after uh, struggling and wrestling, what was he going to do? Because he knew it meant his life. And he finally came back and he, he stood up and he said, you've asked me to recant. He said, I will not, I cannot deny what I have written. And here I stand by the grace of God. You cannot separate Martin Luther from his writings. Luther and his writings go together. They cannot be separated. The books he wrote were his mind in print. And also those books were only as good as he was. And isn't that the truth of any human author? The book is only as good as the author. And this is what brings us to this argument. Jesus Christ is the author of that book you're holding in your hand tonight. That is his book. And it's more than just ink on pages bound together. It's a living book. There's living, alive properties about the Word of God. And Jesus Christ uh, and the Word, which is called the Bible, cannot be separated. You cannot separate Jesus from His Word. The Bible is Christ's mind in print. And uh, the Bible is only as good as Jesus Christ Himself. And so that brings us back to John 8:46. Look at it again once more with me. Look at it. Jesus said, in fact, read it with me. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? And so again, we have Jesus and we have his word. And his word is only as good as he is. And I ask you tonight, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? How good do you believe Jesus is? How pure do you believe Jesus is? How perfect do you believe Jesus Christ is? Because Jesus and his writing cannot be separated. And his writing is only as good as he is. I believe that Jesus wrote a perfect Bible. I believe that to belittle the Bible is to belittle Jesus. Can you imagine how horrible it would be to walk up to, to a mother and father and greet them and pay them homage and honor and, and shake their hand and say nice things about them and then turn to their little boy and say, whose scrap of heap is this? What would that feel like? Those of you who are parents, if someone attacks your child, how do you feel about that? Does that make you feel good? As a parent, does that make you say, well, they have a point. Uh, it's true, my child is not perfect. Do you go along and agree with them and point out more of the flaws? No, you don't. You, you know your kid's not perfect, but then neither are you and neither were your parents. But he's your kid. And to attack that kid is to attack you. And people who attack the Word of God attack Jesus Christ. 
John 8:46, which of you convinceth me of sin? Which of you can prove that I've broken even the smallest of God's commandments? You can't. Jesus is as perfect as perfect can be. Which of you convinceth me of sin? He says, and if I say the truth, that's his word. Why do ye not believe me? Do you know how many Christians there are in the world? I don't know. Maybe there's hundreds of millions, maybe a billion. I don't know. I don't know. Only God knows. But how many of those Christians believe they got a Bible full of errors? I know they're out there. I know they're out there. I know there's Bible colleges today that are teaching that the Bible has errors in it. You know, if you go back far enough, the Bible colleges never taught that. Right up until about approximately, give or take, 1850, somewhere in about there. So that's about 100 and, I don't know, 70 years ago, something like that. All of the Bible colleges, and by the, best, by the way, the best Bible colleges in Europe were in Germany at the time. And the best Bible colleges were teaching that this is the Word of God. This is the Book of God. This is the Holy Word of God. This is the perfect Word of God. Actually, it would be a little bit before this, maybe more of the early 1800s. And then this rationalism started coming in. And men started saying, well, now how do we know for sure? And what if there was a little cockroach that got into the works? Ooh, there's another cockroach for you. Hmm, let's think about that. And of course, they started turning up some new, uh, quote, ancient manuscripts that started saying different things than what men had held to for hundreds of years. And so rational thinking started saying, well, now let's be rational about this. Uh, what is there under the sun that says that's perfect? Oh, you have a point there. And so the Bible colleges began teaching their students that the Bible is the word of God, but you've got to be careful because not everything is as perfect as we'd like it to be. These students graduated and went and pastored churches, and those pastors now started teaching that doctrine to their people. The Bible has errors in it, and it snowballed from there. You know, all you've got to do is go on a website, a church website, and look at their doctrinal statement. That's all you've got to do. And look at what they have to say about the Bible. And they'll say usually something like this. Uh, we believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books uh, of the Old and New Testament, are perfect and inerrant. Inerrant means without error. As they were originally given. And watch for those words as they were originally given and hold the, the power of, of all faith and practice or something like that. But look for those words, as originally written or as originally given. Now what are they saying? They're saying that thousands of years ago when God originally wrote the Bible, it was perfect, perfect, perfect. But over those thousands of years with copyists' errors, eh, well, we have a pretty good Bible. It's pretty good, folks, but it's not perfect. That's what they're not saying, but really what they are saying. What they're not saying speaks louder than what they are saying. I believe that God's not only able to write a perfect Bible, I believe that God is able to preserve a perfect Bible. I believe that. You say, how do you believe that? Were you there? No, I wasn't. Let me ask you something. Do you believe God created the heaven and the earth? You'd say, yes. Let me ask you something else. Do you believe God created the heaven and the earth in six literal days? 
You'd probably say yes. And I say, how do you know that? Were you there? And you say, oh, no, you caught me. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't there. Well, how do you know that? I believe it by faith. How do you know that the Bible is the perfect word of God? Were you there? I wasn't there. But I believe it by faith. You say, why do you believe it? It's because the Bible and Jesus cannot be separated. And the Bible is the product of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus is perfect, 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 so all he can produce is a perfect, perfect, perfect Bible. That's why I believe it. Well, you mean to say that you understand everything? No, I don't understand everything there is in the Bible. I don't know a man who does. I think that if we lived for 500 years and kept studying the Bible and studying the Bible, there'd still be things we don't fully understand. Try figuring out the Trinity someday. Boy, that one's, that's a toughie, isn't it? One God, yet three persons eternally existent in one, uh, uh, how does that again? No, we don't fully understand it here on earth. Up in heaven, we might. I don't know. I kind of have a feeling there are things about God we will never fully understand. That's my take on it. Listen, wicked men today tr still try to prove that Jesus was sinful. Take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Go back there to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, look at verse 55. Mark 14, 55. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found, what's that word? None. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, Say those next two words with me. I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Now, did Jesus tell a lie? Did he tell the truth? Did the high priest believe him? No. There's a perfect example right there. Perfect example of John 8, 46. Which of you convinceth me of sin? Yet if I tell you the truth... Why don't you believe me? Jesus answered the high priest, the truth. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The truth is, I am. And one day you're going to see me come. <gasps> and he rips his mantle. What need we of any further witness? He said. Verse 64, ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. 
how in the world could God have ever let that happen to himself? How he humbled himself for you and for me. There are wicked men today who make movies and write books and try and convince us that Jesus wasn't as perfect as he said he was. That he was sinful. He was wicked. He had lusts. He had relationships going with Mary Magdalene. Horrible, horrible lies told about our Savior. There's wicked men all over the world doing that kind of thing. Devil-inspired, I'm sure of it. Regardless of what others saying about Jesus, by faith, we know he's perfect. We know he's sinless. We know he's as pure as pure can be. And so also with Jesus' word. It is as perfect as he is perfect. John 8, 46. And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? The Bible is from the mouth of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Right. And was Jesus God? Yes or no? Yes. And so did the Bible come from Jesus? Yes. What about the Old Testament? Did that come from Jesus too? Yes. Why? Because the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. We have a great big wonderful God. And regardless of what other people are saying about the King James Bible, by faith we know that it's a perfect Bible. See, and this is where the, the big debate comes in. They say, oh, well, what do you think about the NIV? What do you think about the NASB? How about the ESV? How about the ABC? I've eaten there. <laughs> Little humor. Many Christians seem to believe that Jesus is perfect, but they don't believe that his word is perfect. Imagine that. That would be like saying, well, pastor, I think you're perfect, but you know, I don't believe everything you tell me is the truth. That's, that's about what it amounts to. Imagine that. Imagine that. How would you feel, Brother Ellie, if I came up to you and said, Ellie, I think you're a great brother. I love you, but not everything you tell me is the truth. I don't believe everything that, that comes out of your mouth. How do you feel? You feel bad? Yeah. Yeah, I would too. How do you think Jesus feels when we look at his book and we say, well, you know, it's pretty good, pretty good, pretty good, but you can't believe everything. Can't believe everything in there. Mistakes, you know. How do you think Jesus feels when we belittle his book? How about that one? I believe that the book is only as good as the author. And is the author perfect? Yes or no? So how do we know that the Bible is perfect? It's because the author is perfect. But pastor, I have questions. Praise God for that. If you didn't have any questions, it shows you're in a coma. If you didn't have any questions, it shows you're not thinking. Praise God you've got questions. But where's your faith? Don't you have faith enough to say, Lord, I don't understand why that's in the Bible. But Lord, I accept it. Lord, I don't know why it says this in this passage and this in this passage. Mm, I don't get it. But Lord... I believe it's in there for a reason. Where's your faith? Where's your faith in how perfect God is? That's what it gets down to. Why shouldn't the Bible be perfect? Jesus Christ is Almighty God Himself. 
If you believe that God created the heaven and the earth all in six literal days, there's no reason you can't believe that your Bible is perfect. Now, I'll be quite honest with you. I don't believe that the modern Bibles that use different texts from which they get their New Testament in particular, I don't believe that they got a perfect Bible. I, and one of these days this summer, I hope to get to it, we're going to pull them all out. We'll pull out maybe a, a 10 or 12 different modern Bibles and we'll spread them out amongst the congregation and we'll start looking up verses. What does your Bible say? Oh, what does your Bible say? What does your Bible say? What does your Bible say? And some of you will say, my Bible doesn't say anything because that verse isn't in here at all. You compare them to what God has written and protected and blessed. If you've got a King James Bible, you've got it all. Praise God for it. Now, let's take a few minutes and let's examine a few areas where the Bible does show itself perfect. Look back at Leviticus. Back to the Old Testament. Leviticus, chapter 17. Leviticus 17. Now, we want to get through this quickly. So, like a preacher once said, uh, if you can listen quick, I'll preach quick. And we'll get through it quick. Leviticus 17, and look please at verse 11. Look please at verse 11. It says here, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Say that little phrase out loud with me. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now we're talking medicine and health here. George Washington is one of the most famously known uh, men in the world. He was the first president of the United States. And in many ways, he was a fine man. But George Washington uh, got sick, and the best medical minds in the world believed that the way you drain sickness from the body is to drain the blood from the body. And at 67 years of age, Washington became sick, and his physicians came and started draining out the blood. Now how do you feel? Oh, not so good. Let's drain some more blood, fellas. They drain more blood. How do you feel now, Mr. President? Oh, I think I feel not very good. Better drain some more blood. The doctors ended up draining over a third of his blood, or was it two-thirds of his blood? I forget. Washington died, not from the disease, but from the lack of what? Blood. And the Bible has been saying for thousands of years, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So is the Bible right? Yes, yes it is. Turn to Ecclesiastes now. Ecclesiastes is on the right-hand side of Proverbs. You'll find Ecclesiastes. Find chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Now we want to move from medicine and health. We want to move to science, the subject of science. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 6 says the wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north it whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again watch these next words according to his circuits this verse teaches that the wind travels on circuits and it wasn't until 1843, and it took a French mathematician named Coriolis, uh, he, uh, he died in 1843, to study and identify the wind circuits. That's the first time the world finally figured it out, that the wind travels on circuits. And yet the Bible's been saying it for thousands of years. Was the Bible right? 
Yes, it is. Now let's move to the subject of history. And I'll have you turn back to the book of Numbers. We're doing Bible flipping tonight because it's good exercise. A lot of young people, the well, not just young people, a lot of guys in their 30s and 40s, the only exercise they get is with their thumbs on a controller of a, of a game in front of a TV or something. But Numbers chapter 13 is where we're going here. And we're going to move to the subject of history. History. <clears throat> chapter 13 of Numbers. And look at verse 29. And let's see here. We have... Um, uh, a report by the, um, uh, the spies, the 12 spies that came back. And in verse 29, it says, The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, notice that, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. We'll stop there. But it makes mention of Hittites. Bible scoffers for literally hundreds of years laughed at the Bible because the Bible spoke of a race of people called the Hittites. The world had never heard of the Hittites. And of course, the scoffers, the Bible scoffers, have laughed at the Bible because the Bible speaks of the Hittites. And so every time a preacher got up in the pulpit and uh, spoke the word of God and made mention of the Hittites, out of the word of God, the Hittites, the Bible scoffers would laugh. Ha, ha, ha. There's an ignoramus if I've ever seen one. Where are these Hittites? No evidence whatsoever. There were never any Hittites. The Bible made that up. That's a fable and a fairy tale. And the scoffers would laugh at the Bible believers because of the mention of Hittites. There was no historical evidence that they ever existed. And yet the Bible affirmed over and over that it was true. In 1884, archaeologists dug a little deeper and they discovered some clay tablets with writings on them that confirmed the existence of the Hittites. <laughs> Was the Bible right? Yes, the Bible is right. Not only in medicine and health and in science and in history, but now let's look at geography. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to look at a phenomena that was not known until the 1400s. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. Let's start at verse 21. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. See that? The Bible was saying the world is round. It was a common belief amongst many of the world's leaders and the religious leaders and the Catholic Church and so on that the earth was somehow flat like a table. This was common knowledge. And if you went too far off the table, you'd fall off the edge. Many uh, sailors believed this uh, as well. A few worldly people believed in a round earth, but they were laughed at. In 1492, Columbus sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and discovered North America. And this made the worldly thinkers change. And they started thinking of the earth as being round. 
There are, believe it or not, there are still people today, today in 2018, who believe the earth is flat. They're, they're part of a society called a flat earth society. It's true, I'm not making this up. So they believe we're all deluded somehow in thinking the world is round. But the Bible was saying back in Isaiah's day that the world is round. Was the Bible right? Was it? Yeah. Amen it was. The Bible is correct. Now the Bible is not per se a book of health and, and medicine. It's not per se a book of science or a book of history or a book of geography. But when it speaks on geography, it's correct. When it speaks on science and history and health and medicine, it knows what it's talking about because its author is Almighty God. Let's move to the New Testament, to chemistry. Let's examine chemistry. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you'll know where these books are. You say, hey, I know where that one is. And if you're not a Bible reader, hopefully you're sitting beside a Bible reader so you can just kind of look with your eyes, just with your head pointed forward and you look at your little eye there. <laughs> and then you do it yourself, right? Colossians chapter 1. Uh, you know I'm just teasing you. Now let's look here at chapter 1, verse 17. Please read that verse out loud with me, please. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I would like to suggest you take your pen or pencil and underline those words. By him all things consist. Keep that in mind. We're going to go over to Hebrews chapter 11. So that means we turn to the right. And we go to Hebrews chapter 11. And we look at verse 3. Now verse 3 says, through faith. And this is how, this is your key. This is your secret weapon, folks. Not stupidity. It's faith. That's what it is. Faith is placing your intelligence and your trust in a known entity. That's the word of God. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Many people say, well, that's the little atoms. You, they, you know, you can't see them, but everything was made by them. I take that a step further. I would say that this is creation out of nothing. I think that's what verse 3 is really getting at. That when God created, he didn't look around for a big bang theory. He didn't gather a few planets together and smack them and say, there, from that I can create a world. He created it from nothing. Nothing. Listen, hold up your hand or hold it a little bit up with nothing in it. If there's something in it, take it out. Okay? So now you've got a handful of nothing. How much can you create? with what you're holding. Whew. You know, to be quite honest, there's still air in the palm of your hand, isn't there? And that's something. And someone could create something with the air. The air we breathe has many different uh, elements in it, oxygen being one of them, and nitrogen and all these other things, right? And that's sitting in the palm of your hand, so that, that's something. But if you take that away, now you really got nothing. And what are you gonna do with that? 
Well, if you're God, you can create the whole universe. And that's what God did. Out of absolute nothing. And I think that that's really what verse 3 is getting at. But back in Colossians 1.17, it tells us that by him, that's by Jesus Christ, all things consist. It means to hold together. For 2,000 years until 1661, the great scientific minds believed that everything was composed of four basic elements. Earth, air, fire, and water, which the Greek philosopher Aristotle taught back around 350 BC. Then in 1661, a Bible-believing Christian chemist by the name of Boyle, after studying the Bible discovered that everything was made up of atomic elements held together. Now we believe in atoms, don't we? Those little molecules, hmm? all those crazy things. We've seen pictures of them, drawings of them. We're taught about that in school and so on. It's scientific fact. We've got uh, atomic electron scanning microscopes, great big monsters that can cost millions of dollars. And yes, indeed, they can somehow show us the representation of those atoms and molecules and things like that. Men are working with DNA now. Wow, DNA, probably the most complex, complicated, convoluted type of atoms and, and, and so on mixed together. And they're learning how to splice in there and do things that we thought were just science fiction just a few years ago. But it all goes back to those little atoms. The thing is, what holds those atoms together? That's the point. Because according to the laws of, of uh, physics... Uh, those things should fly apart. Uh, it's like the bumblebee. The scientists assure us that according to the wings of the bumblebee, the amount of uh, surface area that the bumblebee has on its wings, there's not enough surface area to support the body weight of a bumblebee. And by all known scientific fact, the bumblebee cannot fly. And yet, what do you think? How does that bumblebee fly? You see, the Bible teaches us that it's really God who sustains life. He not only created life, He sustains it. He holds us together. You remember those old Star Trek things where the guys stand in these teleporters and they, they, they disappear. Where'd they go? And they get transported to some other world and they're back together like that, right? Well, if God did not hold His hand upon you and me, you know what would happen to us physically? We're gone. We'd be gone. Praise the Lord for the, the laws of gravity that he's, he's established and for his own act of sustaining power, holding all things together. By him, all things consist. Hallelujah. And when we get to faith and practice, we can go back to Matthew chapter 7. And we've covered a lot of different area in a short time. But every time the Bible is correct. Why? Because its author is perfect. Matthew chapter 7, and look at verse 21. Faith and practice. Verse 21, Matthew 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? That means people who stand up and in the name of Jesus, they're prophesying and preaching great, wonderful things. And yet they die and go to hell. Imagine that. 
That's what this is telling us. Uh, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils? In the name of Jesus, be gone! And the devil's gone. And yet this person, this caster out of demons, this prophesier in Jesus' name, ends up in hell. In thy name done many wonderful works. Wonderful works would include humanitarian works. They would include everything that we would think would hold wonder and greatness. And yet they're not saved. They've never been born again. And so what happens? Verse 23, Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work. What's that word? Iniquity. You mean to tell me that preaching in Jesus' name is iniquity? It is if it's done by an unsaved person. Do you mean to say that when someone casts a devil out in Jesus' name, that that's iniquity? It is if it's done by an unsaved person. Do you mean to say that every good humanitarian work, things that we would applaud and, and, and give a Nobel Peace Prize for, that, that's wicked? It is if it's done by an unsaved person. In the eyes of God Almighty. Not in my eyes, your eyes, but in the Creator's eyes. That's what Jesus said. If you don't believe it, then you must believe Jesus made a mistake. That he didn't quite know what he was talking about. But this is Jesus himself. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Wow. And he says, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. That's a perfect Bible. That's a perfect rock. If your rock's got a crack in it, it's not perfect. I just lost a tooth. I was at the dentist not long ago. And he looked at my tooth and he said, uh-oh. He said, mmm. And I, it was infected too. And I had to go on antibiotics. Yeah. And finally, antibiotics are all done. He puts all the freezing in. He drills out all that was in there, all the filling, and he says to me, Pastor, I'm sorry. The tooth is cracked. It was a molar. It was cracked down the middle. Can't save it. Out, out she comes. And I thought, you know, three months ago, I went through the same thing with a tooth on the other side. It seems that every three months now, I lose a tooth. So, you know, I'm starting to do the math, and I don't like what I'm, what I'm about to prophesy here. Yeah, but the tooth's no good because it's got a crack in it. The rock upon which your house is founded is no good if it's got a crack in it. The Bible upon which you're placing your faith is no good if it's got a crack in it. It has to be a perfect Bible. It has to be a perfect rock. It has to be a perfect tooth. <laughs> Otherwise, she's no good. And so it's amazing how many people there are that believe in different religious theories. We spoke this morning about the dead dog theory. That's Darwinian evolution. Eat, drink, and be merry. Don't worry about tomorrow, because when we die, we die like dogs. That's the idea. That's why people believe in evolution. It's because they escape having to stand before Almighty God. The moment a man or woman admits that there is an almighty creator, that's the same moment that they admit, I'm going to have to stand before and meet my creator one day. Prepare to meet thy creator, right? But not if I'm an evolutionist. 
And that's why many, I think, buy into that stuff. Even when we prove to them the illogicalness of their logic, the craziness of what they're, they're trying to believe in, the lies and deception of it, even when we prove it to their face, they say, that's just your opinion. I'll continue to believe what I want. You see, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. That's how she goes, folks. People believe what they want to believe. And it's the same when it comes to the Bible. If you want to believe in a perfect Jesus who produced a perfect word, you will. If you don't want to believe in a perfect Jesus who produced a perfect word, you won't. No matter what evidence we show you, you'll just say, well, that's your opinion. And, that, and, and that, that you're entitled to your opinion. But it's amazing how many people believe in different religious theories. There's the good enough theory of self-righteousness. I'm not all that bad, and God would never condemn a reasonable person to hell. There's the second chance theory of reincarnation. I'll just keep coming back in different life forms until I finally get it right. I'll be given a second chance when I stand before God. Then there's the treadmill theory. Keep doing good works over and over and over, hoping, hoping, hoping for the best that God will receive you. Get baptized. Take communion. Be giving. Be serving. Be prayerful. Light candles. Say a few Hail Marys. Whatever it takes. Then there's the Bible truth method. That's repentance from sin and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That means John 3.16 is true. For God so loved the world, you put your name in there, that he gave his only begotten son, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in him, put your name in there, should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a wonderful promise of Almighty God. John 5.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. It doesn't begin when you die. It begins the moment you get saved. Everlasting life begins for you the moment you get born again. For me, that was April the 6th, 1975. That's when everlasting life began. Not when I die, but 43 years ago it began. Hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. What wonderful assurance we have. And Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. Listen, we need to conclude this. Just as Jesus is perfect, so is the Bible he authored is perfect. In Deuteronomy 8.13, it says, He is a rock, his work is perfect. Psalm 18.30, as for God, his way is perfect. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The book of James talks about looking into the perfect law of liberty. You can trust what the Bible has to say, even though you don't fully understand it. That's where your faith comes in. You see, it's the same when you got saved. You didn't see Jesus face to face. You didn't hear his voice audibly. And yet, by faith you saw him. By faith you heard him. And by faith you repented of your sin and received him as your Savior. And that same principle of faith is what you need in his word. And I can guarantee you, when you honor his word, you are honoring him. And I can also guarantee you, when you belittle his word, you are belittling Jesus. 
You can't separate Jesus from his word. How do we know that the Bible is perfect? Is Jesus perfect? Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? You see, Jesus and his word. As Jesus is perfect, so his word is perfect. And by faith, if you can believe that Jesus is perfect, then you have all the faith you need to believe that his word is also perfect. You don't understand everything there is about Jesus, but you don't have to. And you don't understand everything about his word, but you don't have to. But you do need faith. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.